Netanyahu and Smotrich begin speaking of compromise as they prepare to pass part of the controversial judicial reforms. Saudi Arabia and Iran return to normal diplomatic relations and restore an old neutral defense pact with the help of China. Protests in Iran over the brutality of the religious police and forcing women to wear headscarves seem to be fizzling out. Welcome to Inside Israel News, your home for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, current events in the Middle East, and world news. Or as the internet trolls say, mouthpiece of the Zionist conspiracy, spokesman for the elders of Zion, highly paid propagandist of the Mossad. Yeah, no. This is Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Welcome back, Insiders. This is your host, Isaac Kite, back again with another wonderful episode of Inside Israel News. Uh, your gregarious Vulcan with facts, reason, and logic in a world gone mad. And uh, madness seems to be the, the theme of the week, <laughs> just generally speaking. Uh, talk about a world gone mad. Woo! Anyway, uh, things don't seem to be getting any saner out there. Let's just put it that way. So, uh, dive into this episode. I'm going to try to keep this one a little shorter than usual, uh, just to kind of catch up. Uh, last episode I did was Israel News, but this is not a world news episode. Uh, I needed to talk about uh, Middle East news, and there was so much to say about the judicial reforms and domestic issues in Israel and answering uh, listener questions that I decided to, to forego Middle East news and just, you know, rather than have a long episode... Uh, where I'm kind of cramming a bunch of stuff together. This episode here, I'll be able to talk a little bit more about Middle East news. I'm going to start by talking about uh, updates in the judicial reform uh, issues within Israel. Then I'm going to talk about the uh, Iran, the, the Saudi Arabia-Iran pact. <sighs> this, is, this is wonderful news. And then uh, about protests in Iran and uh, dissent in Iran in general. And once I've had a chance to, to talk about all of that, uh, wrap up the episode. Uh, so this episode will be uh, an update and, of course, discussing some of the broader uh, Middle Eastern news. And, and I may end up doing another Israel episode depending on what happens in the next few days. Uh, but the next World News episode will be coming up soon, and I'll be talking a lot more about China. Uh, a topic that I've avoided for some time because, of course, uh, for the most part, I've been focused on Middle East news. But as I've expanded to world news, it's time to broaden our horizons and talk about what's going on in the Pacific and what may need to be done to deal with that. But that's for a future episode. So, uh, like I said, uh, you know, Israeli news about the judicial reforms, uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, and then protests in Iran. All right. Uh, what's going on in Israel? So um, for those who've listened to past episodes, uh, I'm going to recap briefly. <laughs> but if you haven't, uh, there are very controversial judicial reforms that have been proposed by the Israeli government. The government with the um, the more right. This government has more right wing parties and uh, parties that are farther right politically than has uh, been before. There are a number of issues between the courts and uh, this, these parties, and also Bibi Netanyahu himself, the leader of the Likud party and the current prime minister, uh, who has been the prime minister for most of the past 
you know, a few years, uh, there was uh, about a year and a half uh, where uh, the center right and center left had uh, a coalition that uh, did not involve Bibi being in power. But basically, he's been prime minister since 2009, uh, with the exception of that short uh, interregnum, if you will, of Naftali Bennett and uh, Yair Lapid, who Yair Lapid now currently leads the opposition, an opposition that has been protesting these reforms vociferously. Right. So we have had massive protests in Tel Aviv. There have been a few people who have rioted, gotten a little out of control, uh, but uh, for the most part, peaceful protests. Uh, and there have been discussions of various economic impacts that these reforms could have. A lot of people are upset that it would uh, eliminate checks and balances with the judiciary uh, and this kind of thing. I'm going to talk about the particulars in a minute. Uh, but the, the left in Israel is generally, you know, uh, against the whole thing, very, very adamantly protesting. And uh, now we've had word that a number of Israel's reservists, that is former IDF personnel who continue to serve in Israel's uh, military reserves, uh, will resign if judicial reforms are enacted. Uh, whether they'll resign if any part of them are enacted or the full package, we don't know. What are the reforms? And then uh, I'll talk about how that lays plays into Israelis to, to Israel's structure of government, because Israel doesn't have a constitution. And that complicates all of this. <laughs> Although, uh, you know, constitutional law and navigating constitutional structures can also be complicated, but, um, you know, a different kind of complicated, uh, because at least there things are, are at least theoretically written out and, and there's some structure to it. But, but here kind of anything goes. So the reforms are essentially twofold. Part of the reform is going to change the way judicial selections are made. Currently in Israel, there's a selection committee that is made up of two judges uh, from the Supreme Court, two members of the bar, and two members of the Knesset. So the government, the the people elected to represent the voters, are a minority on that committee. And basically that means, uh, as the right set charges, judges can appoint themselves which means there's a lot of, you know, they, they are they charge, I should say, that there's a lot of nepotism uh, that, uh, you know, family members are appointed. Uh, there's been some legislation to curtail that, but it still happens. At the same time, uh, the judges are not appointed by representatives of the voters. Only a third of that committee actually uh, represents anyone who's elected. I have mentioned before, I have a pet peeve against a bar associations serving on selection committees here in the U.S. and in Israel because bar associations are not objective parties. Uh, these are people who argue cases before judges and therefore, uh, you know, they're attorneys, right? What's the bar association? It's all the attorneys. In fact, for Israel, that means all of the attorneys in Israel. Well, they have an agenda, too, right? They're not objective, Right. The, the attorneys, most of whom are defense attorneys and litigators, want judges who are sympathetic to uh, their cause. Uh, and obviously, prosecutors want uh, judges that are sympathetic to them. Right. So that's that's kind of a thing. All of that kind of plays into political appointments here in the U.S. Right. When we have a nomination to a Supreme Court position, um, those who are tough on crime will will come out and say, we like this judge because he or she is tough on crime, or we don't like this judge because they're not tough on crime. And you'll have, you know, those who, who are more, um, I don't want to say bleeding heart, uh, those more sympathetic to um, 
the criminal class will come out and say, hey, these, these judges too harsh or, uh, you know, this judge is lenient. We like this judge. The point is all those interest groups come out and say their bit. You, you get to hear all of that in the news reports. We the people decide if it really matters to us. And if it matters to us and poll numbers don't look good, judges often are pulled from the bench uh, for the Supreme Court. Anyway, that's the one that gets the attention. Uh, but it's up for the most part up to our senators uh, to make those decisions for us. And we send our senators there to do that. In any case, um, judicial nomination in Israel is done automatically through the selection committee. So the Knesset really has no say uh, other than it gets to put one third of the members on that committee. The reform that has been proposed would start by replacing uh, by adding members to that committee so that a majority of the uh, committee would represent the government. And uh, that part of the reform is uh, going through very soon here. They're planning to pass that before the Knesset breaks for Pesach, for Passover, which is coming up here in April. So um, that is an important part of the reform agenda. So if they get that, that's kind of half of the reform. Part of the, the complaint of the right is how judges are appointed, and it's, it's the strongest of their arguments. The other half of the reform would basically create an override for the Supreme Court. It would mean that some uh, laws the Supreme Court would not be able to override, uh, the, would not be able to strike down, let's just say. Uh, the Knesset would have the ability to override the Supreme Court when it strikes down certain laws, and they'd be able to pass laws again uh, over the court's objections, things of that nature. Now, um, they can already do some of those things. Obviously, they cannot override the courts, uh, but they can repass laws, avoiding the legal issues that cause those laws to be struck down and, and so on. But the, the issue the right complains is that the courts have been inserting themselves into policy. Uh, they've struck down a number of different uh, agreements, policy plans, legislation that uh, conservative or right wing, I should say, governments, not quite conservative like we think of conservatives in America, uh, that those governments have passed in favor of what the judges prefer. And the judges have a tendency to be more left leaning because judges are, you know, lawyers and judges are appointing themselves. They tend to be uh, a little more left leaning while since you know, about 2001, most of Israel's governments have been right-leaning uh, over the past uh, 22 years. So, and of course, the current government is very right-wing. And the fact that this government is the most right-wing government Israel has ever had has not been lost on those who oppose the reforms because they say, of course, the reforms will uh, eliminate checks and balances and allow this government to do whatever it wants. And so there's an argument out there that that would change Israel's government structure. Israel would no longer be a liberal democracy and, and all of these kinds of things. And those arguments are fair, but also silly. Um, Israel will still be a democracy. People will still vote to elect the Knesset. Uh, and, you know, as I've said before, uh, if the left wants to have a say, if left wing parties want to have a say in Israel, politics, they need to win elections. And the fact is elections do have consequences. So when you lose an election, instead of whining about it, <laughs> making big protests and this kind of thing that they're doing now, you know, Israel has a coalition system in their parliamentary democracy. Usually one party does not earn a majority. In fact, it's never happened in Israeli politics. So uh, governments are formed from a, a government that is constituting a, you know, a group of parties constituting a majority of the Knesset is what uh, they can form a coalition, what we call a government in 
the parlance of uh, parliamentary systems. Anyway, they can form a government. Well, the left could join these coalitions. Coalitions don't always have to be right and left. Uh, sometimes uh, they can be, you know, right wing parties with a left wing party or a left wing parties with a right wing party. So uh, they the, the left per knows perfectly well they can join these coalitions if Yair Lapid or uh, another political party out there led by Benny Gantz, um, who is a former uh, Air Force general in, in Israel, if they had joined the coalition, then, you know, these judicial reforms really wouldn't necessarily be on the table. Right. They, they'd have a say in that. But they didn't. And they're saying, well, they don't want to legitimize Bibi Netanyahu. We'll come back to that. Uh, so, of course, they've denied themselves a say. And, you know, somewhat stupidly, in my in my opinion, if they're opposed to these uh, reforms, then anyway, that's here and there. In any case, um, uh, the judicial reform, the selection committee reform is going through. That's likely to pass here in the coming days, just before the Passover holiday, before the Knesset goes on break. And then after they return in May, uh, there'll be an opportunity for uh, the Knesset to consider the other parts of the reform. Already, there is talk of compromise on that. The, that part of the reform would be the override of Supreme Court decisions, the ability to repass legislation, um, the ability to pass legislation that the court could not uh, have a say on, could not strike down, things of that nature, right? And uh, the, the talks of compromise have been coming from different right-wing groups and think tanks for a little while. Bibi Netanyahu, a couple weeks back, seemed to be wavering on that because he's had a lot of uh, indications from veterans, again, uh, reservists and what have you, that they will resign. That could impair Israel's ability to fight a war, right? It will impair Israel's security. Uh, and so now uh, one of the main proponents of the reform, uh, Finance Minister Betzelel Smotrich, uh, I just, as an aside, you guys have the wonderful opportunity to listen to this show and not critique it. <laughs> when I listen, I hate the sound of my own voice. I, I don't know if it sounds that way to you, but I hate listening. And I, I make mistakes. Last time, uh, for example, I accidentally referred to Smotrich as the justice minister. Now, it's not a big deal. You know, if you go look him up, you can find he's the finance minister. But uh, Yariv Levin is is the justice minister. In any case, it annoys me because I made a mistake and I hate that. I can't stand it. So uh, listening to the last episode for uh, to critique it, I found that and I was I'm like, ah, you know, oops, that was a dumb mistake. Anyway, uh, but thankfully, you have the benefit of just listening to it. And if I make a mistake and you catch me, you catch me. And if you don't, well, it really wasn't that big a deal. It was a minor mistake uh, misidentifying his office. But anyway, Betzelel Smotrich is the finance minister. And um, anyway, he uh, uh, he has made a couple of speeches lately that uh, indicate he is open to compromise, that he, he is the leader of the religious Zionists, the, the most right-wing party in the coalition. And uh, he's saying that um, on these, the second part of the reforms, on the judicial override and all of that, he's open to something a little less extreme than what has been proposed. So um, there's talk of compromise, right? And there are, you hear people out there now saying, you know, uh, Benny Gantz is tweeting out there, you know, they... They, they need to stop these judicial reforms before we have a civil war. And it's like, wow, people. And I, I just described in the last episode why a civil war is extremely unlikely in Israel. You never say never, 
but it's unlikely. The, the people on the left in Israel are not likely to attack their government, you know, or uh, attack people on the right. Uh, and neither are people on the right likely to attack people on the left. Uh, this is a political thing, you know, a political dispute. And it's really unhelpful to have people using that kind of hyperbolic language. Uh, but as I've told you before, I love the banter, the political banter in Israel. Everybody's a threat to Israel's existence. And so this is normal political discourse for Israelis. Uh, everything is the, the end of the world and the sky is falling. And every time the government, uh, any government, left or right, tries to pass a major reform, it's always the end of the world. And, you know, democracy dies in darkness and silence and, and all this sort of thing. OK, uh, so there's that. Uh, but uh, I have told you, I, I, I tell you guys my opinion so that you can filter out my bias, uh, but you'll also know my opinion, uh, that while the selection committee change is a reform I support uh, because it will allow judges to be appointed in accordance with the concerns of Israeli voters. And it's like if the left wants to appoint judges, well, they can win an election uh, but uh, or join a coalition. <laughs> join a coalition with the right wing parties that have won the election and uh, moderate the kinds of judges that are chosen in any case. Um, so uh, that part of the reform is going forward. There are two appointments to the Supreme Court uh, coming up that will be appointed uh, once the selection committee change has been made. Uh, those judges will be appointed by, uh, can be appointed by the majority representing the government once that reform has passed. Uh, and then there are two more uh, judicial openings coming up that can be filled by larger majorities on that uh, selection committee that will require um, some of the opposition and some of the judges to join in. So we're going to get to see in live, you know, in action over the coming months how the new selection committee works. And if it doesn't work well, uh, there's every opportunity to reverse the reform or pass a different reform. The, the left has introduced uh, and President Herzog introduced a couple of uh, reforms that were kind of dead on arrival because the right wasn't interested in them uh, that would have more balance, uh, a more balanced selection committee. But we'll see how that goes. In any case, it'll be good that, you know, in the coming months, we'll have a chance to see how well this works, this reform works, and that will inform us about the future. It'll be, cur it'll be curious to see. Uh, in any case, uh, on that. Now, last point on all this, um, we're hearing... You know, people talking about, you know, this would, you know, this this reform, if it passed the uh, the part that the, the Knesset could override the Supreme Court would end checks and balances. And I find this argument really upsetting to me because uh, and, and this thing about, you know, well, it would end Israel. Israel would no longer be a liberal democracy because these are nonsense arguments. The structure of government in Israel is what's called a sovereign parliament. All right. Parliamentary sovereignty is an important concept in parliamentary systems, right? So, for example, in Britain, the House of Commons, the main House of Parliament, has a lot of power. And so when there are structural issues in Britain, they will cite parliamentary sovereignty. But that is not the same thing as a sovereign parliament. Technically speaking, in Britain, King Charles is sovereign. And in theory, with the, you know, with his signature and his seal, parliament could be done away with altogether. Right. In, in theory, on paper, if you look at the power of the crown, the parliament exists because the king signed Magna Carta, the, the uh, sort of the, the legal document from which parliament originates. OK, um, but 
you know, if he chose not to sign that document, King Charles could theoretically do away with all of uh, Parliament because he is sovereign, okay? He has, in theory, on paper, absolute power in the British system. The same thing is true in Israel of the Knesset, of the Parliament. It is a structure with a basic law. The basic law is, is not a constitution. It's a law passed by the Knesset that can be mend, amended by an absolute majority of the Knesset at any time. So there are 120 members of the Knesset, 61 Knesset members can amend the basic law at any time. Okay? And uh, that means that the entire structure of the government, all of the, uh, the constitutional structures... All of the statutes, all of the laws and regulations of the government exist because of the Knesset. There is a Supreme Court in Israel and court system because it is passed by the Knesset. Thus, within this structure of government, if the Knesset wanted to, they could amend the basic law to eliminate and do away with the Supreme Court and the entire justice system. Right? The Knesset is a sovereign parliament. The entire structure of the government exists because of the Knesset. Now, you know, obviously, if the Knesset decided that they were going to do away with elections, right, that would be unpopular. That would be a really bad idea. This parliament, you know, this Knesset is going to serve for life. Yeah, I don't think people would buy that. Uh, or changing it so that instead of having elections, the Knesset can appoint its own members. You know, that would be undemocratic. Okay, granted. However, the Knesset theoretically has the power to do that. Now, the courts are trying to argue that the basic law is kind of a constitution, that there are all these legal principles out there, and they have the power to check the Knesset, to prevent laws like that from passing. Right. So if the Knesset wanted to end elections, theoretically, the Supreme Court could step in and say, no, you can't do that. Uh, but it's, it doesn't quite work that way. Um, so this idea that somehow the courts can interject themselves into Israeli policymaking, right, that they can get in there and, and shut down right wing programs and cancel agreements and deals made by the government and, uh, you know, negate laws that they think are too right wing. Right. Um, that's ridiculous. Right. The Knesset is a sovereign entity. They can do whatever they want. There's uh, even talk with the Supreme Court that they may take the power that they, they they claim to have the power to strike down amendments to the basic law. All right. Now, this is this is a challenge here. You know, the Supreme Court of the United States has no say over constitutional amendments. Right. The House of Representatives and the Senate can, with a two thirds vote of each house, pass a constitutional amendment and then send it out to the states. Right. If it's ratified by three quarters of the states, either, you know, we, we elect conventions in those states and and those uh, those conventions vote on whether to ratify the amendment or the state legislatures typically have been the mechanism that have been used in the U.S. Uh, the state legislatures vote to uh, ratify the amendment. In any case, when three quarters of the states, that's 38 out of 50 now, but uh, when three quarters of the states have ratified the constitutional amendment, it becomes part of the Constitution. So if we wrote a constitutional amendment that, let's just say, intended to prevent judicial overreach and like there's been a proposed federalism amendment, let's just say, that st would strengthen uh, states' rights in America, just, just as an example. Um, if that amendment passed Congress and was ratified by three quarters of the states, it becomes the 28th Amendment. There, the Supreme Court has no say over that. 
as of the time it becomes the constitutional amendment, the Supreme Court then has to implement it. Right. They, they don't have the ability to strike it down or say it's unconstitutional because it's part of the Constitution. So that's the point I'm trying to make. In Israel, the parliament is sovereign. Therefore, they can make whatever reforms they want. The checks and balances are from the legal concept of common law. That is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Common law is a very good thing. Common law is what America based our legal system on and our entire legal theory has grown from uh, British common law is the cornerstone thus of the British, American, Australian, New Zealand, and uh, the, the legal systems in the countries that were colonized by Great Britain, which includes the former British mandate of Palestine uh, that became Israel and Jordan. So the court system in Israel has a lot of the English common law system. You know, America's system kind of grew out of Common law as well, as I've said before, uh, the commentaries of Sir William Blackstone, Blackstone's commentaries, are referenced over and over again by the framers of our Constitution. And uh, one of the arguments that Alexander Hamilton uh, made against the idea of uh, establishing uh, a uh, Bill of Rights, he said it wasn't really necessary because the, the Constitution cited the common law. And the common law already came with all of the principles that are in the uh constitutional amendments, right? Um, obviously, the Bill of Rights was passed later on anyway. But the point there is that uh, they all understood that that, that was uh, those legal principles were there. And the idea of common law is that there are legal principles that supersede politics, right? That uh, issues like discrimination, human rights, uh, and, and a degree of legal right and wrong are more important than whatever a politician wants, right? So that that it would prevent a politician from overstepping their legal authority. And thus, it is a check on dictatorships, a check on uh, oppression and the abuse of power by a majority or a minority, right? So um, that's where the checks and balances argument kind of comes up in Israel. However, again, the, the structure of the government is a sovereign parliament, and therefore um, the Knesset can do what they want to do. Now, in you know, what we're looking for here now, once the selection committee has changed, that means there'll be more you know, right-leaning judges appointed in the future, um, at least because at least for the next few years, Israel's government is going to be to the right. Uh, then um, after that, the, the rest of this reform, the question of overriding the Supreme Court and, and all of that, what really needs to be sought out here is a way for the right to have you know, to, to prevent judicial activism or, you know, kind of reduce the Supreme Court and the judicial system's ability to interfere with politics and policymaking in the Knesset, while at the same time maintaining all that good stuff I just talked about, the checks and balances, if you will, the idea of these higher legal principles, human rights and all that kind of stuff. The left is arguing that, you know, this right wing government is passing these reforms because, of course, they want to do away with all of that. Naturally, anything the right wants to do is not is, is immediately, uh, you know, some kind of conspiracy theory to to establish, you know, 1933 Germany, uh, you know. Meanwhile, when the left proposes reforms, it's all, you know, rainbows and unicorns I've talked about before. Anyway, so that's the judicial reform issue. Uh, there's already talk of compromise after the selection committee reform is passed. And uh, that's headed in the right direction, I think, because if the right 
wing coalition will pass a reform that is not as far reaching or I'm going to use that word extreme. Let's say that doesn't go as far as the proposed reform at this point, something a little less than that, uh, then, you know, that will that will be better than uh, charging ahead full bore. And with the selection committee reform over the next few months, we have four judicial nominations that are going to be made and therefore an opportunity to see how that works in action. And after, you know, reforms are made or what have you in a few years here for sure, by, by 2026 at the latest, uh, the voters will have a chance to have a say and uh, reward this government with another term or punish it by ending uh, its power. And that will uh, answer whether these reforms are right. And again, you know, if the left wants to uh, have a say, then they need to win that election. All right. After the break, we'll switch shift gears and talk about Saudi Arabia and Iran. Iran and Saudi Arabia have been engaged in a kind of Middle Eastern Cold War for some time, uh, basically since 1979, since the revolution. The Iran before that, of course, was led by the Shah, and the Shah was modernizing the country. Iran was, uh, you know, the, you know, you'll see pictures of Iran, you know, women walking around in modern Western clothing and, and men having shaved off their beards, looking very modern. A lot of people going to school, women going to school and, and going to college, a lot of professional uh, education and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, moving Iran into being a modern state. But of course, the Shah's state was also rather brutal and oppressive uh, in in some ways. And a lot of the Muslim clerics and, and the radicals, if you will, who wanted more religious law, did not appreciate being oppressed and, and you know, having their voices silenced by the government. So they rose up. I'm not trying to, to argue in their favor. I'm just meaning that's what happened. Uh, a lot of young people supported the clerics. They rose up against the Shah. What they got was a regime that's just as brutal and oppressive as the Shah's, if not worse, uh, certainly worse. Uh, but they, you know, it's a different regime, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they traded one oppressive regime for another. Uh, but this one, of course, was Islamic, but not just Islamic, Shiite Islamic. And the, the conflict between the uh, Sunnis and the Shiites goes back a long time in Islam. But uh, I'm not going to get into that just to make the point that this is a different brand of Islam from the brand that the Saudis support, which is Sunni Islam. And uh, the Saudis, of course, support Wahhabism. If you haven't heard that term before, the Wahhabis are a particular uh, some so, it's a particular fundamentalist and in some cases militant brand of Sunni Islam. OK, so the, the Saudis and the, and the so Iran and Saudi Arabia are at opposite ends of two extremist ideologies of Islam. So you have a Shiite ideology of which the clerics who rule Iran are fundamentalist militant extremists of that particular brand. And you have a Sunni Islam of which the Wahhabist Saudis are a militant and extremist version of that brand. 
Um, something like, you know, Northern Ireland, as people might might have heard of. You know, I, I don't like making the comparison. I'm just drawing the point that, you know, fighting between, say, Catholic and Protestant Christians, but not just between Catholic and Protestant Christians, between militant fundamentalist extremes of both that, I mean, honestly, really don't exist in Western society today in any numbers that, that are worth talking about. But the point is, if you can imagine... You know, the the militant Islam version, the Islamic State version of Protestantism and uh, something like the Catholic, the Inquisition, uh, you know, the Catholic Inquisition on the other side. Um, that would be, you know, what we're talking about here. So they don't get on. But recently, recently that changed and uh, China brokered a deal between the two. This uh, indicates this is this is China's first big foray into Europe, Middle Eastern diplomacy at a time when they're also kind of stepping to Russia's side. Possibly going to help Vladimir Putin uh, with Ukraine. Uh, now, you know, there are upshots and downshots to that. Of course, the West has threatened sanctions against China for that. Uh, obviously, China cannot withstand any sanctions right now. Their economy and their their food supplies in particular are in a dangerous position. But the point is, China, our number one competitor in the world, now that Russia is kind of on its knees, um, they are in the Middle East making deals. And what does Joe Biden and the Biden administration have to say about it? Nada. Nothing. Nichts. Absolutely Nothing. And and this seems in part on the Saudis uh, part in particular, it seems that they they deliberately intended this as a slap in the face to the Biden administration. Um, many Biden activists uh, before they became part of the administration, even during the campaign, they were attacking and insulting the Saudis and uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, uh, the notorious MBS uh, as I, I've joked in previous episodes, but they, they've been attacking the Saudis a lot. And of course, when you insult these people, they take it personally. So Biden gets into office and immediately the Saudis are giving America the cold shoulder. Uh, when Biden asked the Saudis to increase oil production, to lower U.S. gas prices ahead of the midterms, the Saudis promptly gave him the finger. Basically, uh, they cut production. And uh, that so that was not uh, and you can look to them to cut production ahead of the 2024 election, too. I mean, don't don't expect the Saudis to do Joe Biden any favors, not to say that the Saudis have any special love of Donald Trump. Uh, but I think he's someone they respect better. In any case, the fact is they definitely do not like Biden. And so here they turn to America's number one enemy, if you will, number one uh, opponent now that China, Russia is is slowly falling, uh, China, and uh, broker a deal to get back into Iran's good graces. And that means, you know, diplomatic normalization means now there will be an Iranian ambassador once again in Riyadh, and there will be a Saudi ambassador in Tehran, and the two countries will be able to communicate with one another. Uh, also, the two countries used to have a mutual defense treaty. So they chose to renew that. And so they're bringing that back. Now, let's think on a paper, on a page, you know, would Saudi Arabia really defend Iran from attack? Would Iran really defend Saudi Arabia from attack? You know, this, this isn't a pledge, an honest pledge by either country to defend the other. But the restoration of the pact has consequences. 
right? Now, is this Saudi Arabia kind of shifting away from Israel? It, it might be seen that way a little bit. Um, there was there was certainly talk of Saudi normalization with Israel up until recently. Uh, the Saudis are certainly warmer toward Israel than they've been in the past. But um, here with this particular deal, this definitely is moving in a slightly different direction. And it, it's back to that point. I mean, the Saudis are, are all about the Saudis. They're, they're about what's good for Saudi Arabia. And so now they've given the cold shoulder to the Biden administration. They've warmed to Xi Jinping. They've warmed to Tehran. They are slowly showing that they can be independent. It's one of those things where if the U.S. under Obama and, and now under Biden uh, wants to screw its allies, right, like they did with the Iran deal, you know, just told the Saudis to take a hike if they want to insult their allies, uh, then those countries may not be close allies anymore. Uh, I would I would not describe the Saudis as uh, the alliance between the United States and Saudi Arabia as being as close as it was a week ago, because these talks that they held with China and this agreement with Iran definitely put some distance there. So big slap in the face to Biden and uh, China is making its way into the Middle East Expect more diplomatic tension with China in the future. And this is this is what uh, I'll be talking about in the next episode. Uh, the U.S. and China are going to have a lot more political confrontations going forward. So uh, when I get back from the break, I will talk about the um, protests in Iran and, and wrap up the episode. <laughs> Some months ago, uh, a young woman named Masa Amini was beaten to death by Iran's religious police, their religious enforcer police. Uh, what she was beaten to death for, uh, she was not wearing her headscarf properly. She was wearing a headscarf, but not wearing it the way they wanted her to wear it. Uh, they ended up taking her back to uh, their police headquarters, and there she was beaten to death. Right. Uh, this sparked protests and uh, has made uh, just, I mean, Iran became a mess there for a while. A number of security uh, forces, you know, members of the security forces and even uh, security leadership in Iran were actually killed. So, I mean, usually the killing is the Iranians against their protesters. Uh, dozens of protesters have died. Many have been beaten and injured. Uh, it's been another round of, of horrors in Iran. And of course, uh, I just talked about a couple episodes back in the World News episode, the In Other News segment, uh, that there have been gas attacks on Iranian girls' schools by, you know, not necessarily, it's not clear whether it's the religious police or who's doing it, uh, but certainly people who do not believe that girls should have an education. So I Iran's been a mess. But I also mentioned early on in these protests not to get your hopes up. Uh, this regime has survived internal strife many, many times. Uh, eventually, they find that if they kill enough people and beat up enough people and um, maybe let some things slide a little bit, over time, the energy fizzles out and the people go on about their business. And that's kind of what's happening now yet again. Uh, there, It's been said that in many parts of Iran, especially in urban areas, uh, that there are a lot of women going around without headscarves at all. And that nothing's being done to them uh, over the headscarf issue now. Well, 
you know, the the government may have the religious police stand down just a little bit <clears throat> on that issue for a time since it's been a hot button issue. But you can rest assured in a year's time when everyone's kind of moved on, they'll start, you know, arresting women for not wearing their headscarf and they'll start beating people up again. And someone may end up being beaten to death. Maybe they'll be more gentle this time, uh, a mild beating just to to convince uh, the young woman that, uh, you know, the, the Iranian, you know, a few bruises to, to remind her that the regime is in charge and you do what they say or else. God, the, the evil of the, of this regime, I'm telling you. In any case, um, it is sad to see these protests fizzle out because this is a terrible government. And there are a lot of people in Iran, a very powerful minority who are just fed up with it. And, and they haven't supported the government all along. For some reason, the vast, you know, the majority of Iranians look the other way. Um, a lot of people either support the government or they don't act, uh, they don't protest, they don't oppose it. They know the government is extremely corrupt. They know that uh, the government is oppressive and they are either supportive of the government or unwilling to challenge it. And that's unfortunate. In a lot of situations, people are docile. And you saw that here, you know, with the COVID thing, you know, you had all kinds of people uh, standing six feet apart, wearing masks, doing whatever they were told, even though uh, there's no science behind any of those things, shutdowns, lockdowns, all that kind of thing. No science behind any of it, just Chinese tyranny uh, and an attempt to influence the 2020 presidential election. Uh, But the the fact is a lot of people went along with that. They just rolled over and played dead. Now you know, you know, what people are, are like when they're in these situations. Uh, it, it's easy to see how, uh, for the most part, you know, a lot of people looked the other way when Mussolini came to power, when Hitler came to power. Now, I, I, we don't have to compare everything to Hitler. Stalin, when Stalin came to power. The fact is most people are fairly docile. There are very few people who are willing to be active. And in Iran, the government takes advantage of that. So yet again, protests have fizzled out in Iran, and that is an unfortunate thing. The Iranian government is approaching having enough uranium to build an atomic bomb, something akin to the Hiroshima bomb, perhaps a little more powerful. Uh, And that is pushing the situation where Israel might have to strike even closer. Now, I I have to point out, in 2020, there was a deal with Iran on the table that the Trump administration negotiated. The Iranians weren't willing to accept it until they knew the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, but it would have required the complete provable shutdown of all of their nuclear activities in exchange for the lifting of sanctions. And the sanctions were brutal. But of course, this administration came in and lifted a lot of those sanctions because orange man bad. And therefore, you know, they want to they want to show that, you know, we're just the opposite of the orange. And so they let our enemies run wild. And now Iran is close to having an atomic bomb. Thank you, Joe Biden. <clears throat> so here we are. Um, this is an absolutely unacceptable situation. And Israel may have to strike. You know, they may have to attack those nuclear facilities for their own security. If the Iranians get a bomb, uh, they're much more likely to use it. We're not talking about a rational player here like Russia or China, where even though they're aggressive, we can count on them having at least some sanity in the employment of their nuclear weapons as a deterrent, not as a, an offensive weapon. Uh, 
you know, Kim Jong-un, who uses it mostly as a bluff. Look at us. We're dangerous. You have to pay attention to us. You can't ignore us because we're dangerous. We have the bomb. Um, the Iranians are religious fanatics. The idea that using this bomb could bring on some kind of apotheosis or, you know, the end times or what have you, uh, that, that belief is very strong among a lot of the people who rule Iran, who have the real power in Iran. And so that is very dangerous. On top of the fact that Iran has many proxies, Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon, Hamas in the Gaza Strip, uh, the Houthi rebels uh, down in Yemen. They have, they have lots of groups all over the Middle East, terror groups that are uh, answerable ultimately to Tehran. And so as a result, uh, Iran could theoretically you know, send uh, the bomb. Obviously, the Israelis would be watching. So the chances that it would make it to, say, Lebanon would be very difficult. But if they if they managed to accomplish it, if they could get the bomb to one of these terror groups, one of these proxies who could then employ it, right, drop it on Tel Aviv or try to, uh, then they could try to make the argument, well, it wasn't us. It was it was Hezbollah. Right. Well, you know, the, the, the point being that they may try something far more dangerous uh, than just deterrent. Then the fact is the Iranian regime of all of the governments in the world is the most likely to want to employ a nuclear weapon that is actually to use it uh, in their cause, uh, un, you know, unlike uh, all of these other people, you know, all these other regimes. So a dangerous regime that should not have a weapon. And uh, it's a terrible moment for I told you so because Bibi Netanyahu told us so. He came and he addressed Congress. He opposed the Iran deal that Obama put together. <clears throat> they, um, all of the, you know, the, everyone in the pro-Israel community warned people and said, no, 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 you can't do this. It's a sellout. Iran will get the bomb. And what happened? Uh, here we are. Iran may very well get the bomb. So tense situation here. I really, really wish it were possible for the people of Iran to overthrow their oppressive government. And uh, they have a lot of young people who are unemployed, who want economic opportunity without the burden of their oppressive, corrupt, fanatical re rulers. <laughs> they could have a prosperous economy, uh, but um, not under present circumstances. Well, thank you for listening in for another episode of Inside Israel News. Uh, I appreciate your listening as always. Please take the moment to rate the podcast. Five stars would be much appreciated. Four stars if it's not perfect. We'll take four, please. <laughs> uh, rating the podcast helps uh, others to see the podcast. InsideIsrael.news is the website for uh, Inside Israel News. You can also find Inside Israel News on the Political Vanguard website, politicalvanguard.com. Uh, and uh, as always, I'm on Facebook. There's a Facebook page, Instagram, TikTok, uh, different places, you know, where I can get out to the audience. I mean, people, you know, TikTok and spying and all that. Yeah, but the videos that I create there are seen by a lot of young people. And it gives me a chance to engage with a lot of these young people. Uh, so I'll, I'll take the chance of spying to get at that audience that needs to see pro-Israel content. And that's that's what I that's what I do. In any case, thank you for listening. As always, goodbye. Lahitrod.